Uh, it is why I stopped saying if you are immature. I'm sorry, Josh. Nope. If you are a small child who is children's church eligible, uh, head on down for children's church. I am going to do the incredibly awkward pray a second time. Uh, but you know what? I, I, we've talked about this, kind of the weirdness of the transition. Pray. Let kids go. Pray again. Uh, and I, I had a couple of thoughts on it. I, uh, number one, it does screw up the flow, but I think it's important that we take a moment to pray for the, whoever it is that's running children's church. Because uh, i got to put up with, not my kids, because they're too old. Uh, though Josh would probably have gone downstairs had he had the opportunity. Um, but also because they... Um, because they are dealing with your, you know, with God's children. I mean, they are they are um, gods before they're ours, right? And so we have to remember that over and over again. The kids are are belong to God before they belong to us, and um, God takes their teaching and their raising and their maturing very seriously. And it's something we have to take very seriously too. Um, so let's pray also for the message that that as I uh, share the word that I don't mess up. Uh, and that, uh, that y'all hear me and come to know Jesus more in all of this. So, Heavenly Father, I pray that you would be with me this morning as I preach the word. Please be with our, our children's church leader, that they would uh, point the kids towards Christ in this, in this time that they're teaching. I pray for your mercy on all of us, um, that, that your spirit would saturate us as a body, uh, that, you would, uh, that you would be with us. In Christ's name, amen. We are back to the book of Acts today. Uh, Acts of the Holy Spirit is what I've been calling it, because uh, despite the fact that it is essentially the Acts of the Apostles after Jesus left, it is the work of the Holy Spirit in the world following the, um, following the departure of Christ and then the uh, arrival of the Holy Spirit, like D-Day, for spiritual growth and the church's explosion across the world. Uh, and so we are in Acts. Uh, we've been doing... Uh, Old Testament, like Jesus in the Old Testament, and now we are jumping back to the book of Acts, which is a very fun book, and I'm actually really excited to be back to it. Um, Before I get there, I want to talk for a minute, because we're going to be looking at the road to Damascus, which is a heck of a topic to talk about. There is so much stuff and so much breadth and depth. Hey, you all need to be careful. We're getting more and more people in these front rows. We're not Baptists. Well, whatever. (laughs) Um, So, uh, we are in the book of Acts. We're going to be talking about the road to Damascus. This is Paul re-entering the story. Before I get to that, I'm going to talk about, uh, I'm going to throw out a name, and we're going to see how old everyone is and how long y'all have been going to church. The name is uh, Mike Warnke. You and me, buddy. (laughs) You do, too, because you're a Baptist by raising. Mike Warnke was a fellow who in the 70s um, began uh, speaking and writing. Um, He wrote a bestseller, uh, a book called uh, The Satan Seller, I think it was, uh, ironically named. 
Um, Mike Warnke, in this book, outlines his history of having become, having become a high priest in the Satanic Church of America and this crazy involved network of Satanic people who were involved in banks and the government and everything else. And um, then, through a miraculous event where he wrote a check to the Church of Satan or something like that, uh, a bank teller received the check in the mail and wrote on the canceled check, I'll be praying for you. And then he went through a miraculous conversion, and he wrote books and made a lot of money and traveled around and spoke to stadiums full of people and everything else. The only problem was it was all totally fictional. Every last word of it was completely made up. He invented the whole thing out of whole cloth and made an enormous amount of money doing it. Um, The crazy thing is that he is not that unusual in that regard because um, there are other instances. Like there was a fellow who uh, taught my uh, apologetics class in seminary, the only class I got a B in, so I already didn't like him. It was B+. Anyway, but he made up out of whole cloth, a story about having been raised in a radical, like, ISIS-type Muslim family and walking into a large church the first time in his robes and flowing headgear and his radical conversion at meeting Christ in that moment. And then he went around and, like, debated theology with imams and, you know, had these dangerous encounters and everything else. And he was eventually fired from his job at Liberty Seminary because he... Made it all up. All of it. And they should have negated my grade. (laughs) 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 Given me that 0.1%. Why am I talking about this? Because these are elements of something that is like sort of endemic in the church. It is sort of um, a crazy thing that the church has done. We emphasize celebrity, right? Man, our culture is all about that. We love celebrities. We make celebrities out of people who by no right and for no reason should be celebrities. I'm not talking about any Kardashian in particular, but there are... I was trying to catch you drinking your coffee there. Uh, the, the, the trick is we love to, to look at people and say, oh, wow, look at this story, and to idolize people. We turn people into idols because in the, like, because as a culture, we're lost and we're hopeless. In the church, we do it because we forget what really, really is amazing about every conversion experience. And it's not the individual story. It is what Jesus does. Mike Warnke could get away with it because he could tell gory details about satanic nonsense he made up and people wanted to hear that story more than they wanted to hear about Jesus pouring his blood out for us. I was in college once. I was talking to a group of guys. We were all sort of sitting around talking about our history and our spiritual upbringing. And one guy looked at another and said, I wish my life had been like yours. I wish I could talk about Jesus saving me from such awful stuff. I'm so jealous that you were so outrageous and that God brought you back from so much. What an insane thing to say. 
And so as we dive into Paul, the temptation here is to lose track of what's important. But we're going to work our way through because Acts and Paul's own words point in a completely different direction. Um, we talk about the Damascus Road experience and all this. Like, that's a phrase people use. But it's about the sinner then and not about Christ. I love telling the story of Amazing Grace because the guy who wrote it was a slave trader. And it was a radical conversion. And he went and, like, changed his entire life. But what really is amazing is the grace, not the story. Right? So the book of Acts, real quick, there's a short background because I've spent way too much time on my introduction, uh, and the prayer was long, both of them. Uh, the book of Acts, uh, what's going on in Acts really is, it's the story of the birth of the church and the spread of the gospel. Jesus summarized the whole book when he ascended into heaven. Very beginning of the book, he says, you know, you'll preach the gospel to Jerusalem and to, you know, and to all the world, like he spreads it out in stages. And that's what we watch happen in the book of Acts. We watch the Holy Spirit acting to move the gospel and to change the entire world. I know that strobe light bothers the heck out of me. Um, if only someone would fix it. Um, the spread of the gospel is the point of the story. And Paul's story is all about the spread of the gospel. And your heart has to be a dead machine to not see, to not get the fact that Christ changed Paul. That the amazing thing that happened was that Christ changed Paul. You would have to be heartless and just a voice in a watch to miss the fact that what Christ did was amazing. So, Paul so far... Uh, shows up. We, we get our first taste of Paul before we ever hear his name. We encounter a man named Gamaliel, who was one of the greatest rabbis of the first century. Gamaliel was, um, was kind of a rock star in the age. And Gamaliel, in the Sanhedrin, when the apostles are first, the very first time they are put up for trial, he stands up and he's like, all right, guys, listen. If we fight these guys and they're on God's side, we're fighting God. If they're not on God's side, they're fighting God. Let's back up and let it happen. Then Paul, a student of Gamaliel. By the way, to be a student of a rabbi was a life's work process, right? It was not an instant thing. It was a very difficult thing to accomplish. In order to become a rabbi student, you need to have memorized the entire Old Testament, memorized. I did not stutter. Memorized, along with the Talmud. The Babylonian Talmud is like 30 volumes. It is an encyclopedia, and you must have known it by memory. And even then, it wasn't a guarantee. You had to demonstrate a great deal of potential, enough so that the rabbi says, follow me. So this guy has worked his whole life to follow Gamaliel. Gamaliel says, leave him alone. Paul does the opposite. This is one of the most astonishingly offensive things he could possibly do. But he really hates Christians, right? Um, he presides over the execution of Stephen. And then he goes on from there and he persecutes the church going door to door, throwing men and women in jail, having them tortured and stuff like that, trying to like, like deal with the church and drive it away. The amazing thing is that despite the fact that he did this, like 
I don't know, it's like dandelions, right? You run them over with a lawnmower, what do you have? More dandelions. You run Christians over with persecution, they spread out and make more Christians. You cannot beat us that way. Um, And that's what happened. The church spread, and it spread big. And so we pick up in chapter 9. The Ethiopian eunuch was converted in the last chapter. In our first Easter week, we talked about that. Now we are in 9, 1 to 2. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. Um, that phrase, murderous threats, he is breathing out murderous threats. He is, I, it, it's hard to like put this to words properly. Like he is angry. He is viciously angry. I would suggest that it is a rare thing apart from American politics to encounter folks who are this angry at other people. Right? I, I know, I'm treading on thin, thin ice. He is so angry that he has persecuted the church where he's at, and then he went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. So, it is a somewhat hazy bit of history. There is strong evidence, there is evidence supporting the idea that the high priest could extradite uh, criminals from other cities. And so he's going with extradition letters to these synagogues, and he is going to drag the Christians back. This is a lot of work, right? It is a lot of work, especially since he's going to Damascus. Damascus is a six-day journey from Jerusalem. Like, it is maybe the case that he's already hit a lot of the local cities, and now he's going further out. He hates the church. He has a seething hatred of the church. You ever sit around and think about people and, like, you just really get annoyed and angry and irritable just thinking about them? You ever get so mad about something that you can hardly get through your day without, like, having to hit something with a hammer? I, I, men, do you ever? <laughs> and, it, and there's a lot of that right now, right? Like, we have a lot of this, like, where we, we're just angry. And this is the anger Paul has, and it is against the way. By the way, this is one of the earliest designations of the church. Um, the idea here is that it is um, the, the way is the way to the Lord, or the way, or the way to salvation, and and it is a subset at this point of of Judaism. It is not separated out into a separate group. It is a subset within the Judaic faith, the way, and and um, a lot of times early churches would meet in synagogues because it's the middle of the community, and they would debate and discuss these things, and they would include these people still. To not be included in a synagogue was to no longer be a part of the community. If you were a widow, for example, there were social systems in place to feed widows, and they were all based out of the synagogue. And so if you didn't go to the synagogue and you were an orphan or a widow or whatever, you were out of luck. Um, Your neighbors didn't talk to you. You were an exile. And so they continued to attend the synagogue. Eventually, 
um, when the synagogues became really hostile and they began to openly pray for the death of Christians, which is something that is exists in like ancient literature. We have support for this, that the prayer books mention Christians dying horribly and stuff like that. Yay. Um, they would, uh, they started worshiping on Sunday. Like, yeah, well, maybe we'll get together tomorrow instead of with you people. It's not an, an arguable thing. Like, it's a reasonable thing. That's how church became Sunday, by the way, in case you've ever wondered. So he's on his way to Jerusalem. He's going to gather these people up. He's going to throw them in jail. He is angry. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Said, or Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. I super love this section because this is a lot. Could you imagine being in Saul's spot, suddenly waking up and realizing, like, oh, wow, I'm wrong. Not only am I wrong, I've been fighting God. If only somebody had made that suggestion to me at some point. I am so wrong that I've been involved in the execution of at least one Christian. I've been involved in the jailing and torture of, you know, of people who are following Jesus. And now I've experienced what's called a theophany. A theophany is where God shows up. Um, a really common theme in theophany, by the way, is where the person falls down in front of God. You know why? God's scary. Like, amazing, awesome, beautiful, scary. I remember years ago when we were in Costa Rica, um, my wife and I, and we hiked through the rainforest, and we ended up at this spot where um, it was a cloud forest on top, and a, like a, a cliff face, so like the mountain just went up, and the very top of the mountain was surrounded by clouds, so you couldn't see it, and there was a waterfall. And a pool at the bottom. And out of the waterfall, I mean, out of the clouds, the waterfall fell. You couldn't see the top of it because it was in the clouds. And it was falling so hard and it was so loud when it hit the water. And I, we got there and we're in, the, the, like, the rainforest. So, like, I, you know, I took off my shirt, took off my shorts, and I waded out into the water. And I walked up to the edge and I looked at this waterfall and I, and number one, like, the water is cold, incredibly cold. And I'm standing there thinking... I should get underneath that. And then another part of me thought, that water's moving really fast. I wonder how that's going to go. This is where Paul is. Beautiful, terrifying. And so Paul falls to the ground. By the way, this is the middle of the day. Um, a large flash that blinded him in the middle of the day, or that was even noticeable, is a lot. Right? So he's surrounded. Jesus shows up. He sees and talks to Jesus. It doesn't say that he saw him. I thought he went blind. Actually, he saw Jesus. He says it in another book. He says, hey, how am I an apostle? I saw the risen Lord. This is the very last time Jesus shows up after the resurrection, physically. Right? I mean, I know that he appears in dreams and... You know, he, uh, uh, John has a vision in the cave, and then sometimes he shows up in tacos. Uh, but, no, it's a joke. You, you're too young to get it. But that's, 
a whole thing. I didn't, anyway. Um, but this is the last time Jesus shows up. And what does he say? All right, Paul, get up and go. You're going to know what, what's next once you're in there. This is a big deal. A lot of times when we talk about this passage, what do we focus on? What I've been focusing on throughout the sermon. Paul was bad. Paul was vicious. Paul was angry. Paul wasn't just persecuting men. He was persecuting women, right? In that culture, not a small thing. Paul offended his master to do this. Paul is murderous. He hates these people. But he's about to become Paul. Right? By the way, the Saul-Paul thing, it's just um, variants on the language that the name is used in. Like, that's just all that's going on there. Sorry. Uh, a lot of times people read this and they say, oh, Jesus changed his name. Nope. It is just a variant on the language that is spoken when the name is used. Uh, the men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. By the way, uh, in one of the Easter sermons, for those of you all who are here, I talked about the echo, right, the tune. When you hear that sort of melody that plays through, you know, like the, the uh, uh, what is it? Dr. Shivago song that plays through or the Star Wars theme that's in all nine movies, 10, 11, lots of movies. Um, this is a moment of that, right? Because how many days? Three. And his blindness, physical now, is a reflection of a larger truth. The fact of the matter is that Paul was blind. Paul was deaf. Paul was unable to speak truth up until this point. It was a spiritual reality, and now his outward facilities reflect his spiritual reality. There is no one who is more blind than someone who refuses to see, and Paul was blind. Paul probably had heard the gospel on a bunch of occasions by this point. He had probably debated Christians. He probably knew their arguments. I'll explain how I knew th know this in a minute uh, when we get to that part of the text. But Paul, having heard it over and over and over again, shut his eyes. Anybody, all, any of y'all have kids or husbands that? Right? No. I know you don't. Well, the kids, maybe. Um, so what's going on here is Paul's outward thing reflects his inward thing. We see this um, when Jesus talks to the Pharisees, and Paul is a Pharisee, where he talks about, like, you know, the blind, right? You know, ever, ever seeing but never perceiving, ever hearing but never understanding. This is Paul. And so Paul is blind. He is struck blind. He is the greatest enemy of the church, and now he is something else or he's about to become something else. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. Interesting thing, Ananias was probably a guy who already lived in Damascus. He is not a refugee. That means the church had spread that far. It is six days to the north of Jerusalem. Um, he is probably a Jewish convert. 
Uh, there are a couple other things that are present in this, like understanding of who the guy is. But the church had continued to spread, and like these aren't refugees. So Ananias is there, and he's described as a disciple. Was he one of the original disciples of Jesus? I don't think so. I think he's a later convert. But um, there's really lean evidence to make that argument. So uh, the Lord called out to him. Well, he's not one of the 12, one way or the other, right? Um, he may have been one of the um, 500 that saw him or one of the 90 or whatever, but you know, he's, I think he's a later convert, is my opinion. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. Um, the Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street. By the way, Straight Street still exists in Damascus. Crazy, right? This uh, town is over two millennia old at this point. It is now over four millennia old now, and that street still exists, um, though it goes by a different name now. Um, the house of Judas on Straight Street, and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him and restore his sight. So kind of an interesting thing. Ananias finds out what he's supposed to do from Paul's vision, which Jesus explains to him. It's, I don't know. I thought it was funny. It's a vision and a vision. Um, so real quick, any one of us, if I am praying and the Lord appears to me and says, Eric, Go across town and have a conversation with so-and-so. There you will lay hands on him and heal him. What is the first thing I'm going to say? Maybe after lunch? During the next commercial break? Once I save my game? No. Yes, Lord, I'm on it. The response? Lord. Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. He doesn't quite argue, but it's about as close as you can get without arguing, right? Like, uh, you sure about that? You want me to go do what? What? By the way, this is a point in time where we might be tempted to look and say, wow, Paul went from this to this. And Paul can very easily become the center of the story. But let's pause a moment and think about who and how everything is happening. He is blinded and told what to do next. Who did that? Jesus, right? Sunday school answer. This should be easy. Um, so Jesus, Jesus sent him. Like blinded him and sent him. He's laying blind for three days and he has a vision about Ananias coming. Is that Paul's work? Not a bit. It's Jesus. Ananias is sent by God. Whose work is it? Jesus. What has Paul done so far? He fell down. Jesus, that's right. What has Paul done so far? He fell down, he lost his sight, and he hasn't eaten or drink, drank in three days. By the way, there's a possibility he's fasting. There's another possibility that he is absolutely in shock and he's horrified. If I found out I murdered one of the followers of the true God and I thought I was doing God's work and doing it, I would be wet in my pants kind of scared. Right? 
And I suspect that a great deal of what he's doing is, like, he's a Pharisee. The Pharisees are looking for the Messiah to come. And he's like, I've spent my whole life looking for the Messiah. And he came. And I screwed it up. That's worse than the mighty case he's striking out. It is the biggest, like, fumble he could possibly have made. And he did it in front of, not even just in front of, like, a stadium of people. He did it in front of God. But the Lord said to Ananias, go, this man is my chosen instrument. By the way, did Paul choose to be God's instrument? No, he didn't. In no way is Paul making a decision. God made the decision. God picked him. God blinded him. God sent a guy to heal him. God picked him. The only thing Saul did was screw up and lay there. To proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and the people of Israel. Love this line. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. God says, all right, we're going to bring it. Paul's life going forward is going to be very different. He is going to spend the rest of his life running for his life and being tortured and being beaten and being mocked and arrested and rotting in a jail cell and hungry and naked and on the open sea clinging to a board like a cartoon character and a whole bunch of other stuff. And why? Because he's God's chosen instrument. A lot of times we like the idea of being God's chosen instrument so we can stand up and have everyone look at us, right? That's Mike Warnke. That's that awful theology professor. In reality, it goes the other way. And the person we should be looking at over and over and over and over again is Jesus. Because none of it works apart from Christ's intervention. What makes this an amazing story is that Christ saved him. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it, placing his hands on Saul. He said, Brother Saul... Love that. Brother Saul. How many of y'all know folks that you look at them and you think, oh my gosh, that person is the worst person I know? Or you drive by and they're wandering along on the side of the road and you think, oh my gosh, how can somebody let their life get like that? Or you know they got a drinking problem. Or you know they're divorcing because they screwed up their marriage. Or you know... There's something not quite right upstairs, and you look at him and you think, oh, my gosh. And Ananias says, Brother Saul, the very first encounter that Paul has with the church is Brother Saul. The Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. I planned on going a little farther. I'm actually going to stop right now, um, because I want to talk about these, past, these bits here, and I didn't start preaching until five after the point where I normally do, and a bunch of other stuff, and um, I want to treat this text properly. But right now, what we're going to focus on is this 
Jesus did everything. The only thing we bring to our salvation is the need to be saved in the first place, right? When we read the story of Jesus being crucified last week, um, it's us that crucified him. It was our sin that made it necessary. If we were there, we would have been yelling, crucify him along with the mob. The only reason we're not is because Christ has cleansed us and renewed our minds. Because otherwise we are by nature God's enemy. There are several factors that play in here that are very common to conversions throughout the scripture. I wanted to touch on them. Uh, First off, God does everything. If you are a saved person, you are saved because God did everything. If you find yourself wandering around in a place of pride where you say, I have done all of these things, God is lucky to have me, pride is spiritual cancer. Right? Pride is the thing that makes us blind to what God has done on our behalf. Those of us who belong to Christ are saved because Christ saved us. My Casey saved me from myself over and over again. Even after I came to know Christ the first time, I fell away and he brought me back. There's a personal encounter with Christ that takes place. Does everybody have a personal encounter with Christ that involves them going blind? And if you didn't do that or speak in tongues, you're going to hell? No. People say that. It's not true. Personal encounter with Christ is the moment we come to Christ and we have an engagement with him that is about our real life. Right? It is easy to turn your faith into a theory or a thing you do on weekends or a thing you used to do when you grew up or a thing we've always done or a weird cultural phenomenon. And in reality, there is a center of ourselves component to all salvation. You stand before God and you acknowledge who you are. I have said it a million times recently. I hate talking about my screw-ups. I am really not proud of that stuff. And I don't like doing it because I don't want to be Mike Warnke. I do it because I'm garbage and Jesus died for me. The amazing thing in the scriptures, the amazing thing in Paul's Damascus Road experience, the amazing thing in your lives is that when you were unlovable, when you screwed up, when you were soaking in your own misery and filth and shame, Jesus was tortured on your behalf, and he loved you enough to do it. And that personal encounter with Christ, sometimes it means bringing your woundedness. This is how I'm broken. This is what happened to me. This is what was done to me. This is how I have been lost. This is how I was raised. This is how I was attacked. This is how I fell on my face. This is how I responded in my pain. This is how I, this is how I rebelled. But that personal encounter with Christ, it's unique to all of us. Everybody has their own deal. It does not mean that we should sit around and stare at each other and say, man, I wish I could say the same thing you get to say. You know why? Because like, it's not about us. If Christ saves you, that's enough. If somebody is telling their story in a way that makes them sound awesome, take a step back and be careful. Number three, what we see Paul do right away is he submits to divine lordship. His very first thing, he knocked down Theophany. Oh my gosh, there's a glowing figure in front of me. 
and I can't see and everything else. And the very first thing he does is he d- he says, Lord, who are you? Or like, yeah, you know, Lord, who are you? Yeah, I, he refers to him as Lord. Sometimes that refers to sir. In this case, it almost certainly refers to like, oh, I get it. You're God. What do you want? It is easy to say a prayer. Anybody do that? Like, you know, you're at that revival thing or you're at some youth camp or whatever, and they say, now say this prayer and you will be saved. In reality, the prayer is the first step. Part of the deal is, God, you're in charge. I screwed it all up. You, Jesus, take the wheel. Oh, I'm so sorry. Just making sure people are still awake because this is more important than the time and I need to get it in. Um, we submit ourselves to his lordship. If we, we may not do it all at once. It might take us years to do it. There might be little parts of our lives that we struggle with, little things that we say, God, I know I'm not supposed to do this. I know it's okay, but I'm going to tuck it away and you'll, you'll be all right. I'm, your grace is sufficient for me, right? I can sin all I want. You'll make more. Submitting to Christ is number one. We cannot say a prayer and then forget about him and believe that the prayer was a magic formula or a spell that we said that saved us. Submission is, is, is tantamount. It is, I am, my life has become unmanageable. You're in charge now. Number four, so we have conversion comes from divine initiative. Like this personal encounter is always in Scripture. Uh, the submission to the Lordship of Christ and um, other believers play a role in it. When I became a believer, when I came to know Christ, I was surrounded by believers who helped me learn to read the scriptures. I, who helped me learn who Jesus was, who taught me things. It is very easy to believe that we can do this without the church. And in reality, that is not how God designed it. We are designed to train as disciples under each other. We are designed to grow. We are designed to be a part of the body. We are not designed to do it alone. Um, In our culture, individualism individualism is sometimes... I am actually using an outline. Do you see this madness? Um, Individualism is a thing that we do. It is all about me and my feelings. And I just know because this warm feeling in my heart, and in reality, individualism is just not scriptural. Do we have individual salvation? Yes. Do I have an individual relationship, mission, and job from God? Yes. Do I do it all alone? No. Do I get to do it apart from everyone else? You could choose to. But if you choose to, you are not investing in the people around you, and you are not growing from them. Even Paul spends some time with the disciples. Dude's an expert. He is the equivalent of the Harvard grad. I don't know. Harvard's not as prestigious as it was. MIT? MSU? No. (laughs) Um, He knows the scriptures, and he needs some guidance. Um, We have to remember that we are a part of the body. We have to remember that we belong to the church and we grow and we serve and we work together partially because we're commanded to but in a really big serious way that's how we're designed it is the way we are made does that mean that online church doesn't count it does not it means that fellowship is a part of the equation it means that relationship it means that those of us who are here need to remember those of us who are not and those of us who are not need to remember the ones who are here 
and we need to be family despite. Uh, finally, last one uh, is suffering. Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me, right? How many of y'all have done that? I left my cross at home. Sorry, guys. For many of us, taking up our cross is wearing a necklace. No, I'm, I'm not trying to be critical. Actually, this is the quote I read last night from Kierkegaard. I read it to my wife, and she stared at me for a few minutes and then laughed about it, but I think it was a nervous laugh. Um, Kierkegaard wrote, I went into a church and sat on the velvet pew. So I went into the church and sat on the velvet pew. We don't have velvet here. I watched as the sun came shining through the stained glass windows. The minister, dressed in a velvet robe, opened the golden gilded Bible, marked it with a silk bookmark, and said, If any man will be my disciple, said Jesus, let him deny himself, take up his cross, sell what he has, give it to the poor, and follow me. And I looked around, and nobody was laughing. The reality is that following Jesus is not a hobby. It can turn into a hobby. Following Jesus is not a thing that we do over here while we do our other stuff over here. We live in the most comfortable society that has ever existed and probably ever will until heaven happens. We're like the princess in the pea where a slight discomfort keeps us awake all night. In reality, we are called to do uncomfortable things in the name of the gospel. We're called to visit people we don't want to visit. We're called to love people we don't want to love. But Lord, don't you know that guy? He's a big jerk. He came here to arrest us and throw us in jail and torture us. I don't care, the Lord said. Go do it. He's going to be my chosen one. And every one of us, we know those people. Some of us hate them, right? They got the wrong signs in their yards. They drive the wrong kind of vehicle. They drink too much. They swear too much. They chew tobacco. They drink, smoke, and chew and go with girls who do. In reality, taking up the cross means going. We don't worship people who changed horrible ways. We worship a Christ who changes horrible people, including us. And then every one of us is saved to spread the gospel. Every one of us is saved to share Jesus with people who are lost. Man, he said one last thing and he's still talking. I'm going to close in prayer. My challenge for you today, my encouragement is, like, where are you at? What is Jesus doing in your life? Are you connected to other believers and growing in your faith? Are you hiding aspects of your life and thinking, God doesn't really want this, I don't really need to submit? Are you somebody who showed up your entire life and has never, ever encountered Christ? I'm going to pray. My encouragement for you is to to talk to God today. Just comfort your God. My challenge is to take up your cross, right? Heavenly Father, 
I pray that on this morning when I talked way too much that despite my meandering, despite my babbling, despite my silliness and my confusion and, and everything else, Lord, I pray that despite that we would have heard from you. And I pray, Lord, that we would be people that when we stand up and say, take up your cross and follow me, nobody thinks, oh, that's probably a joke. I pray that you would, I pray that you would help us to be your people. I pray that we would look for the Pauls, the enemies of the gospel, the folks who hate you in their actions and words. And I pray that you would help us to be Christ to them. Help us to answer the call like Ananias did. Help us to, to step into people's lives and, and love them like brothers, even when we don't want to. Lord God, I pray that you would help us to hear your calling on us in these things. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a good day, guys.